Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 31st, 2022, Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. We've done a couple of quite light shows on Halloween, one about imagining a, from a comic novelist, first-time novelist, um, imagining what hell is like, a kind of uh, Kafkaesque-style bureaucracy, another with a historian trying to rethink America in terms of graves. But if one was to suddenly appear in America on uh, October the 31st, 2022, and uh, go on the internet, one might think that we're already living in a kind of hell in the way in which crime is represented. Um, apparently, the Republicans have a symbiotic relationship with crime, which may well be true, an obsession with crime. Most people in America seem to believe that crime is way, way up. The stats, of course, don't match that. In fact, if anything, crime is down. And even uh, the Democrats who like to present themselves as ideal, also fetishize crime, more and more obsession, with, for example, uh, with the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. So uh, how to make sense of an America which in some ways appears like a hell, a hell on earth when it comes to criminal justice and its prison system. Uh, my guest today is the author of a new book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration and the Future of Public Safety. She's joining me from across the San Francisco Bay in Oakland. No jokes, Lenore, today about Oakland as hell uh, coming from San Francisco. Uh, in all seriousness, congratulations, Lenore, on your new book, In Their Names. Um, how much already in late 2022 has America become uh, a hell on earth for uh, its criminal justice system. Well, thanks so much for having me. There's uh, the story that the media uh, often uh, parrots from politicians, which is, as you described, one in which crime's out of control and the criminal justice system is too lenient. And then there's the story that uh, you get when you look at the issue from a very different lens. And that's looking at it from uh, the lens of people who are being hurt uh, by crime and violence. And when you take that different look, what you learn is, uh, yes, we're living in a time where uh, there's increases in terms of certain types of crimes, especially, uh, you know, uh, gun related homicides. Uh, but we're also living in a time in which most people hurt by crime and violence have not ever actually gotten a lot of protection and support from the criminal justice system. Um, the solutions uh, that are usually bandied about in the political arena are uh, sort of fear-mongering and slogan-driven, but those have not actually done a lot of good at the community level in terms of stopping the cycle of crime and violence. And so what, you know, what the experience that we have talking to survivors across the country, you get a really different picture, not just of the problem, but also of the solutions. Lenore, you're, in addition to being a writer, you are the 
president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, an interesting group based in uh, Oakland, California. Um, tell me about this alliance. What are you trying to do and how does it fit with your new book in their names? Well, I'm an attorney by training and a, a campaigner and an organizer in, in my heart. And I've spent the last 20 years working to change crime policy in the country. Alliance for Safety and Justice is a national organization that focuses on uh, advancing a smart uh, public policy uh, in the arena of public safety. So we are looking to reduce incarceration and increase funding for community-based public safety programs. Part of uh, how we do that is by uh, elevating the voices and experiences of people who have been unprotected uh, by the traditional uh, criminal justice system approach. We have uh, crime survivor members all across the country and we uh, put uh, folks in buses and drive uh, folks up to the state capitol to talk to legislators, to elevate their experiences and to, uh, to win reforms. We've had a good amount of uh, impact. We've started to see incarceration come down in some states, more money go to grassroots uh, community-based solutions, but there continues to be this kind of elephant in the room when you're talking to policymakers. That elephant is this myth that all that tough justice from the 80s and 90s was about protecting victims. And so that myth kind of means that in the world of policy, you know, there's this idea that you can either be for public safety or for criminal justice reform. But what we have tried to do is break through that false dichotomy and say, no, actually, the tough justice era didn't help most victims of crime. It actually led to more harm than good. And there's a new way to approach public safety that would be informed by uh, survivors. One of the odd things about America, tragically odd, ironic things about America is not only is it one of the most religious places in the world, although I think religion in some ways is in decline, it was founded on religious principles, but it's also the country, I think, perhaps with China, with the most amount of people in jail and the most vindictive criminal justice system. What is this connection in America between or is there one, or is it just coincidental, between organized religion, who often tend to be quite harsh on crime, and vengefulness, when the traditional Christian teaching is, is one of sympathy and forgiveness? Yeah, the, the mythology that the tougher you are, the safer you are, has, has kind of driven public policy in the U.S., at least starting in the in the 70s and and the 80s um you know before the 70s and 80s crime was not really a centerpiece um uh issue in uh the political arena um and then that shifted and and when that shifted it was this sort of idea that um, you know, as crime rates were increasing in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a kind of a law and order response, a conservative uh, viewpoint that has some of those um, underpinnings that you're talking about. And the idea back then was, oh, you know, crime is going up because, you know, judges are too lenient. So we need to get tough. And that's how we're going to protect victims. 
you know, victims' rights organizations joined arm in arm with law enforcement lobbyists to kind of champion that vision of how you get to safety. Um, but it really missed the mark um, because ultimately what all that uh, call for vengeance did was hand over a ton of cash and power to American criminal justice bureaucracies. Those bureaucracies grew but victims who were allegedly kind of the original uh, people we were seeking to help uh, continued to be left out. And that's really kind of the story that I wanted to uh, tell when I was uh, putting this book together. We've done a number of shows about mass incarceration in America, one with uh, Jonathan Rapping, for example. You're probably familiar with his book. Um, uh, Gideon's Promise, a public defender movement to defend criminal justice. But it seems as if your argument is about crime survivors. You're suggesting that people who survive crime, violent or otherwise, they're the ones who are relatively liberal on crime. Um, so a couple of questions on that. Is this borne out by the data, I'm always a bit skeptical of people who argue, well, the data says this and that. It's a counterintuitive assumption. Sometimes one would think, well, if you've been hurt or if you've been robbed, you'd want to actually punish the perpetrators. And the, um, but, but are you suggesting that the truth is otherwise? Our uh, organization has done a lot of surveys of uh, representative groups of victims We've interviewed about 10,000 victims over the last decade on a range of topics, their experiences with criminal justice, their preferences in terms of policy. And there's a couple of themes that really stand out and they, they are counterintuitive themes. It's, it's very different than uh, the popular cultural mythology of the vengeful victim. Uh, what, what we find when we talk to representative groups of victims is the top priority is they want what happened to them to never happen again. Um, most uh, people who are hurt by crime and violence are well aware of the limitations of the extreme punishment response to do that, to actually prevent uh, someone from returning to the cycle of crime. So that top goal of wanting to stop uh, what happened from ever happening again tends to lean towards uh, uh, survivors uh, preferring investments in prevention, investments in rehabilitation, uh, things that would have a better likelihood of stopping uh, that all too familiar uh, cycle of crime. So I think that's one of the uh, things that's so um, out of whack compared to what is in popular uh, culture uh, that really needs to be uplifted and uh, put forward. I think yeah, it's interesting that um, you're suggesting that victims of crime have a more, and I use this word carefully, a, a more philosophical understanding of what causes crime. They don't see it presumably as just arbitrary, um, that it's a, a consequence of one kind of socioeconomic or cultural injustice or another. Is that fair? You know, m most uh, people who are hurt uh, by crime and violence uh, are personally familiar with, um, you know, the, the people engaging, right? So, you know, crime frequently happens between uh, people who know each other. 
Um, and so oftentimes people who are uh, hurt are very familiar with what we call the drivers, right? The, the sort of the causes. And, you know, this idea of, um, you know, people uh, be experiencing desperation, whether that's economic desperation or uh, substance use disorder, uh, people um, experiencing unaddressed trauma, all of those things lead to violent outcomes if, um, if, if we don't do something to prevent crisis from becoming crime. And survivors in many ways are the most experienced on that question of what exactly, why did it happen? It's, it's kind of shocking to, to learn that crime policy is not actually informed by people who've been hurt, right? You would, you would think that this would be the sort of the core stakeholder in the public debate, um, but it's really not been. It's these you know, uh, criminal justice bureaucracies who've been uh, given so much money over the last 40 years. Well, when you talk about a criminal justice bureaucracy, can you be a little bit more specific? Who are you talking about? Sure. Well, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, the, the buildup was really a, a big transfer of cash from the federal government to local police departments. Um, and uh, we also saw the growth in the size of uh, prosecutor offices, uh, sheriff's budgets, corrections budgets have exploded. Mm. And um, privatized yeah. prisons, which I assume contribute to this. Yeah, you know, the, the, um, the amount of money that is spent um, you know, on the corrections apparatus, right? From from police on the street all the way to uh, prisons, it's about three hundred billion dollars per year. That's with a B. Yeah, it's ironic again, and there's so many tragic ironies here that people always assume that the law was designed to protect us from passion. So the law was this um, this this objective code which would behave in a rational way in the event of a crime and that the victims of crime would be irrational. We couldn't trust them, but you're actually suggesting the reverse. That's who knows an awful lot about um, both why crime happens, but then also what it, what it takes to heal from it. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I talk about uh, in the book is, uh, you know, the, very overlapping uh, life experiences of both people who have been hurt by crime and violence, especially repeatedly, as well as people entering our prisons and jails um, after having been convicted. Um, you know, the, the life circumstances are so overlapping um, that it's, it's kind of undeniable that we have a real problem of a cycle of unaddressed trauma. Uh, instead of uh, looking at this as sort of in one case, how are we going to have maximum punishment in response? We could totally reverse engineer this and look at the problem of trauma. How are we going to reduce the impacts and heal trauma? That would actually be a smarter approach to public safety. So, you know, this is where, um, you know, where I've learned about this is really from interacting with and engaging with uh, survivors. Um, that's been much more informative for my understanding of how to get to safety than my time working inside the criminal justice system. Right. I, so you're, you're suggesting that people are more victims of crime and more forgiving. Let me throw out one example. Victims of 
domestic abuse, women, for example, who are beaten by their husbands or their, their partners. Are you suggesting that if you gave them more power in terms of determining punishment, um, that there would be less punishment, that they would be more forgiving? There's a couple things that we would see. Um, first is that uh, we would see a much bigger emphasis on prevention, right? So many of the cycles of harm, whether it's family violence cycles or community violence cycles, these are preventable cycles, but very little is done to help people. Um, so, you know, one of the things that uh, many leaders in the movement for domestic violence are uh, working on now is how do you help uh, perpetrators uh, get the kind of support needed uh, to um, learn behavior change? Um, you know, there's an old saying, you know, among those of us who've worked in criminal justice and, and public safety, um, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, well, healed people heal people, right? So um, this idea that uh, we can uh, learn from people who've been hurt about what it takes to heal them, but also heal others. I think you're going to see a lot of opportunities for alternatives. So, you know, it's this thing of like, it's not necessarily like lenient versus tough, right? That, that it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. And there's more options than that. Smart accountability, kind of the way to maximize accountability actually often doesn't come from the toughest sentence. It can come from a direct engagement through restorative justice. It could come from um, community service. It can come from cognitive behavioral therapy. There's a lot of different accountability options that will reduce the likelihood that violence will continue if we allowed those options to have a real uh, role in our response uh, to public safety problems. Your alliance is based in California um, and, and you talk about Californians joining together. Uh, California is, of course, one of the most liberal states. This kind of conversation between you in Oakland and me in San Francisco is not in any way uncontroversial. It's probably quite normal in California. But the reality, um, Lenore, and, and, I, and I doubt you would disagree, is that in political terms, this is not a vote winner. Uh, the likelihood is if it's not Trump, it will be Ron DeSantis, who is the Republican candidate, and the likelihood that he will run on a strong anti-crime, punitive um, message. Uh, it, it's very hard for the Democrats to run on the kind of message that you're talking about, uh, of victims' rights and of sympathy. It's simply a vote loser, isn't it? The that's the the common political wisdom. I mean, that's really kind of what drove the whole tough on crime, you know, era in the 80s and 90s was, you know, the tougher you can sound, the more likely you are to get elected. But it, but it was true. I mean, the people who ran who weren't tough on crime, the Mondales and the Dukakises, they lost. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely the common wisdom. But there's reason for hope. I, I believe that there's reason to um, view this with a little bit more nuance. Uh, you know, first, voters from across the political spectrum understand desperation as a key driver of 
uh, crime. Um, when you ask voters of kind of all political persuasions, you know, what are some of the core drivers of crime? You'll get answers like a lack of jobs, um, drug addiction, and economic uh, desperation. And so when you understand that that's what voters are thinking is the cause, the solutions can look a little bit different than the one-size-fits-all lock-em-up solution. Um, you know, we've asked voters across the country uh, from all political persuasions, you know, would, what do you think is the best way to prevent future crime? And the answers tend to be more in the realm of, you know, building strong communities, strong youth violence prevention programs, mental health, um, you know, this a, more um, a public awareness of the issue of mental health, the issue of unaddressed trauma. These are things that live in our culture in a different way than they did even 20 or 30 years ago. So for those reasons, I think that the smart way to approach this from a politics perspective is yes, we absolutely should be concerned about crime and safety. That's the right value. And we hold that value to be true. But we got to abandon the ineffective and frankly dangerous ways that we've tried to achieve that in the past. You know, this is a time to, um, you know, look smart at what kind of government community partnerships could make a difference. You know, we've been um, talking about uh, different success stories um, that are happening across the country and it and it resonates. Um, you know, there's um, you know, Newark, New Jersey, um, the Newark Community Street Team. They've been in partnership with the police department there in Newark and the mayor's office. And they saw a significant decline in, in their homicide rate right before COVID hit. And it was one of the cities that actually didn't see this big spike, um, you know, after COVID. And it was really because they were looking at the issue different and they had community involved conflict mediation, trauma recovery you know, youth outreach, that's a kind of example that resonates across the political spectrum if you if you can get into those kinds of conversation with voters. Lenore, you talked about an elephant in the room about the myth of protecting victims, but um, isn't the real elephant in the room when it comes to crime in America race? Your group is um, refreshingly diverse, but probably not that typical. Uh, I wonder in terms of the research, whether people, particularly white people, manifest racial discrimination when it comes to whether or not to forgive and be more tolerant of uh, people of their own race versus particularly uh, African-Americans. What, 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 what do you believe the, tr the truth is in terms of it, it's impossible to separate racial conflict and racial discrimination, the history of race in America from the history of criminal incarceration. How is this addressed in your argument in their names? Well, you know, there's been an immense amount of um, uh, wise uh, uh, books written about the ways in which uh, extreme incarceration has had uh, horrifying uh, racial uh, disparities. As right. The new, I mean, essentially, it's the new Jim Crow. Exactly. And w one of the things I'm offering in my book is an additional way in which uh, discrimination shows up, and that's discrimination against victims, right? So race is absolutely embedded. Um, you know, I talk about this idea of the hierarchy of harm, um, and that's a basic idea of, you know, which victims matter to the criminal justice system and which victims do not. Um, you know, when it comes to 
um, race and socioeconomic status, that has an immense determination on whether or not the criminal justice system is there to protect you and there to respond when you're hurt. Um, you know, for uh, victims of color, for low-income victims, youth victims, victims from uh, marginalized communities, um, the justice system frequently fails to adequately investigate, fails to offer real help, and fails to deliver any justice in court. So, you know, this is an aspect of the ways in which um, racism has played out in American criminal justice that really needs to be elevated especially now uh, when there's this, um, you know, uh, attention again on the issue of crime and we hear calls for law and order once again. Is this the untold story in, in part, Lenore, that, uh, that black and brown victims uh, are taken much less seriously by the system than white victims? Yes, the, you know, the mythology that continues to prevent the country's ability from abandoning mass incarceration is mythology that all of this buildup of criminal justice was for safety and for victims. But when you, when you let go of that myth and look at what's actually happening, all of that buildup of mass incarceration hurt victims more than it helped. And that's really critical for uh, you know, people uh, to understand, especially when politicians are calling for a return. If we go back to this law and order kind of talking point and approach, we're actually hurting the very people um, that we're allegedly seeking to help, which are uh, survivors of crime. So let's end, you know, this is noble and I'm certainly sympathetic. I I'm sure a lot of our audiences are, but People will be thinking, well, this is all very well. We've heard maybe not this particular story, but these types of stories before. And it's very hard to address them politically. It's all very well changing the conversation. But what concretely can uh, politicians and citizens like you and I do to address this issue in a very doable way rather than these dramatic cultural or legal revolutions that never seem to happen? There's a lot of concrete uh, steps that have been taking place and, and need to continue to move forward. Um, first, we really need to revamp the, all of victim assistance and victim compensation. You know, one of the other untold stories in the book is just how few victims get help. Um, you know, the uh, majority of victims of crime um, are are eligible for victim compensation and assistance, which would make a huge difference in uh, helping uh, survivors heal from trauma, but they just don't get access to that support. This is another place where we see uh, racial discrimination. Um, you know, victims of color are uh, more likely to be repeatedly hurt by um, uh, crime and less likely to get access to victim compensation and assistance. So this is fixable. Um, my organization has adjusted uh, through policy reform work. We've made adjustments to victim compensation policy in about a half a dozen states um, that has improved those programs' uh, ability to get things like financial assistance and relocation assistance and um, trauma recovery therapy to victims. So that's one concrete thing is let's revamp victim assistance programs so that, that all that money that is there for victims actually gets in the right hands. 
The second thing um, that needs to happen is we really need to continue to march forward and not away from criminal justice reform. Um, the country has made some good strides in reducing incarceration and expanding uh, restorative justice and rehabilitation. There's so much more that can and should be done in that area. The third um, opportunity for reform is really uh, looking at this, um, you know, this legacy of mass incarceration, which is the permanent exclusion of people uh, with records from economic mobility. Um, you know, in California, we just passed uh, 731, which is a, a bill that will uh, allow for California to have a much more expansive, what we call expungement policy, which means people with old records can actually get their um, records cleared and get back to work and um, getting housing and things like that. That's good for public safety and good for the economy. Those are just a, a few examples of, of what's possible. And it's important to note, you know, these are these are tangible changes that are actually popular um, across across political lines. But I, th I think the last um, point I'll raise is that, um, you know, despite the failure of mass incarceration to protect victims and um, instead just worsened the gap, um, especially between um, victims of color and the justice system, there's a, a number of leaders across the country who are building these kind of remarkable programs you know, some of the things that uh, should be funded uh, that can go a long way towards improving public safety are happening right now at the neighborhood level. There's there's violence prevention programs, uh, street outreach, conflict mediation programs. Um, there's, the, you know, one of the models actually where you are in San Francisco, it's called the Trauma Recovery Center. This is just a remarkable program. It's, um, you know, community-based. It has uh, kind of crisis assistance for victims um, as well as, um, you know, mental health uh, su support. Uh, we've advocated through legislative reform uh, to grow that model across the country. We started with just the one in San Francisco. There's now 41 trauma recovery centers across the country, and they're making such a huge difference. These are survivor-led safety solutions that um, uh, politicians of all stripes should be able to get behind. And uh, let's say, and I mentioned uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, Gavin Newsom might run, especially if uh, Joe Biden decides not to. Uh, is California really leading the way? And, 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 and should we, you know, it's always easy to bash politicians, particularly one as telegen telegenic and, and smooth as Gavin Newsom. But is he leading the way on this? Governor Newsom has done a remarkable job to advance smart public safety reform. Um, and it really matters that California has made some of the changes it's made. You know, um, I go through the history a little bit in the book, but, you know, a lot of people are not as that, um, you know, both the original victims' rights movement and the original sort of call for tough on crime actually emanated from California. This was sort of the, the state that was the toughest and it spread from California across the country. You know, it, back in the 90s, um, you know, politicians in Florida would say that Florida should be more like California because California was so tough, right? So the fact that this state has now turned a corner and is now leading on innovation and leading on smart public policy, um, that's inspirational. And I think um, it should be held up as an example um, you know, and really what that example is, is it's about it's abandoning myths 
Um, this myth that more incarceration equals less crime, it doesn't. The myth that, you know, um, the toughest you can be is what is, is in the interest of victims. It's, it's, it's not been proven to be that. And then replace it with, you know, community-based prevention and um, listening first to people hurt in order to determine um, how we want to build safety. Uh, maybe the book could be renamed from Reagan to Newsom. Uh, congratulations, uh, Lenore Anderson, on an important new book uh, in a, uh, an all too often uh, misunderstood tragic subject on Halloween, the real hell on earth, victims of crime, crime and mass incarceration in America. Well, uh, what else uh, are you reading, Lenore? I hope you're reading something slightly more entertaining sometimes. Novels, histories. Well, you know, I am uh, spent a lot of time uh, when I was working on the book, uh, reading uh, books written by some of my heroes um, in my uh, in my field. Um, so, you know, one book that I just encourage all your readers to check out if you haven't is uh, Becoming Miss Burton by Susan Burton. This is just a remarkable memoir by uh, one of the former, formerly incarcerated uh, champions for justice reform. Um, she's been uh, building uh, reentry centers for women coming home from prison for uh, the last decade and is changing lives. I love that book. Um, I, you know, another book I would recommend, you know, if any of your listeners are uh, parents of uh, young teens, um, Aswad Thomas. Uh, wrote a remarkable uh, book uh, for young adults called The Stars Represent You and Me. The Stars Represent You and Me. And um, this is a book that really... Uh, yeah, you deal with him in the book. He was a, yes. a victim of a, an arbitrary crime. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and grew up um, navigating um, uh, gun violence as a, as a young uh, child. Um, and this book uh, is... Uh, a, a really important read for um, youth and teens who may be uh, experiencing similar environments. So I definitely recommend that book as well. 